Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. We welcome back electrical engineer Bob Schmidt in this episode, and we talk with him about the manner in which engineers can share ideas without using words. Drawings, sketches, block diagrams, they're all means for communicating important engineering concepts. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 74, Ideas Without Words, January 22nd, 2015. So, Brian, what's the first thing you do when you think of a new design idea? Uh, typically, I write it down if if it is doesn't require any sort of drawing or any software, if it's just a concept. But beyond that, then I'm generally moving to simulation of a circuit or running prototype code on a mocked-up system or laying out a board. Yeah. So when you say you write it down, what are you writing down? Are you writing down words? Or are you writing down symbols? Well, it depends. I mean, uh, sometimes it's sometimes it's conceptual. You know, the mm-hmm. the box must do X, and here's certain ways so we can make it do that. Or uh, if it's uh, if it's a circuit that solves a particular nagging problem that I'm going into, actually sometimes I'll even skip drawing it down and just bust out LT spice and confirm my assumptions about how it'll behave yeah and and do you ever at at this point in your career do you ever just sit down and start uh, kind of sketching out the circuit or do you immediately go to your uh your software tools depends on how novel uh or how different what i'm doing is is than what i've done before um if Mm -hmm. it's you know simple by state logic of some kind i'll i'll go directly to schematic um, and board layout. If it's something that I want to understand the circuit and the tolerancing, I'll definitely spend a couple hours, maybe even more, in LT Spice. Mm-hmm. And, and are, do you feel at all constrained by the fact that you're working within those software tools? Sometimes. Uh, sometimes okay. you, I mean, LT Spice is Linear's product, and sometimes you have to improvise with components that are in the library. Uh, you know, I have added components to LT Spice when I have to. Other 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 times, I have to look at it and go, "Well, the component I'm really going to use isn't in here. Can't find a model immediately, so this part kind of looks like it, or maybe two of these parts kind of look like what I'm trying to do." Yeah. Well, you know, I find in mechanical design, I find that oftentimes I the desire is I want to run to the you know to the modeler to to uh, you know something like SolidWorks, which is what I use mostly, but. Uh, a lot of times I find that I'm, I'm better off if I hold back for a little bit and start sketching out things on paper uh, just to, you know, play with ideas and play with positions. Because once you uh, once you put it up on the screen in uh, in SolidWorks and you start spinning that 3D model around, you're sort of tied to that visual image. You know, I, the configuration that's there, you know, I, you sort of get tied into it. Whereas if I'm working on on paper and I can kind of move a line a little bit or, or shade it in a little bit and it means something different. Uh, I've got some flexibility. So it, do, do you run into that in, in schematic design? Well, I was going to ask you because I find I get very uh, self-conscious about things when I draw them, such that I then start to hmm. obsess over how crappy my drawing is. Um, <laughs> whereas 
you know, even if I'm mocking up a, uh, a schematic, you know, moving parts around, connecting various ports in LT Spicer in a, in a schematic, I can kind of disassociate myself from the act of doing that as opposed to, you know, if I was drawing it, I would go, wow, that dial looks like crap. You know, oh, I hope nobody yeah. sees how I drew this crappy resistor and none of my resistors look alike. <laughs> hmm. Well, when I'm doing it, my thought is I never worry about that because I'm not doing it in front of people. I'm always, I'm usually sitting at my desk somewhere and I'll go through lots and lots of sheets of paper where I, I draw an idea and I go, okay, I kind of got that part, but the rest of it, not so much. And then I'll redraw it. And when I redraw it, it gets a little neater, but then I'll throw more crap on it and then I'll redraw it again. And, and it's not unusual. I'll go through 10 or 20 sheets of paper just redrawing it over and over again as I refine the concept. But when I do that, um, I'm doing it outside of the constraints of the, of the solid modeler. And so I'm not having, you know, at, at every turn, I'm not having to worry about, well, have I, have I aligned center lines and have I, you know, have I complete, uh, have I correctly constrained this part with, with, uh, with respect to the other parts so that when I spin the assembly, it, it works correctly. That kind you of thing. don't, uh, hit multiple saves as you go through, uh, rendering something in, SolidWorks, you know, get partway through and go, ah, this is version one, you know, and then try some other things and go, this is version two, and it kind of sucks. I'm going back to version one. <laughs> yeah. No, I I do do that, and and uh, I will – same sort of thing where, where – in fact, I can think of a large project I did where uh, I go through a lot of sub-projects, sub-versions, uh, but in this one I had nine – even in the final drawings, I had nine versions of the entire assembly, this entire huge machine, just as I did exactly what you're saying, tried various things and then sort of backed out of it if it wasn't working. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe that's the difference between mechanical and electrical engineering. As you draw something out 10, 20 times, you know, you're, you're refining it each time because what you have drawn on the paper is what you're going to build. Whereas if I do a crappy MOSFET drawing, well, it doesn't matter. The part's not going to change when I pull it out of my box and solder it down. So I just have to get the connections on paper. You have to get the shape and how it's all going to fit down conveyed. The look of it matters a lot more. Well, well, certainly the spatial relationship is more important because the function of the mechanical part will is is very dependent upon its uh, spatial configuration. Whereas you've in a uh, an electric design, electronic design, you've got a lot of flexibility in in where the the traces can go. As long as it gets from point A to point B, you're okay. It's not unusual for me to to look at a particular point in a schematic and go, well, I know I'm going to need a resistor here or, or a network of resistors. I have no idea what they're going to be, but here's the topology. And cut the board before mm-hmm. I've even done any analysis as to what the resistors have to be. Because mm-hmm. I can drop in any particular part I want. Yeah, yeah I, guess, I guess that's the difference. I can't, if I, if I need a screw, I can't. Uh, retroactively say, well, I mean, I can, but, but it, it costs money to, uh, just say, well, I want a, uh, you know, a, a number 10 screw here and then decide later, no, it should be a quarter 20 screw and then decide later, no, it should be a three eight sixteenth screw. It costs money every time I change that. I can't, uh, I can't decide that on the shop floor without, a, without, uh, having well, to spend some money to get it fixed. I think the mechanical analogy is, you know, balancing weights and spinning surfaces. You know, you know you're going to need to put if you've got something rotating that's got a ton of mass and it's rotating fast. You know you're probably going to have to put some weights in there, right? Uh-huh. 
it's not going to get turned perfectly. So you just provision knowing that you're going to need to add your slop at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, so, so the, the concept, the idea that we're, uh, we're sort of uh, talking around here this evening is that there's a lot of our thinking, a lot of our design efforts, uh, a lot of our communicating that is communicated via figures and drawings and charts and math and isn't particularly well sometimes uh, expressed in words. And so our topic for this evening is ideas without words. And uh, we thought that uh, to uh, join us in this conversation, uh, we'd invite back uh, Bob Schmidt, who's an electrical engineer who's written the book, An Engineer's Guide to Solving Problems. And uh, our listeners may remember that Bob joined us uh, last year in episode 48 for an episode uh, titled Troubleshooting. Uh, So, Bob, welcome back to the Engineering Commons. Thank you. Glad to have you on again. Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) Uh, First of all, before we get into uh, a discussion of this uh, Ideas Without Words concept, uh, how's the book going? Oh, uh, it, it's it's doing okay. We're you know trying to find the right audience. Uh, we have uh, found a little success with some engineering uh, classes, uh, mm-hmm. some colleges, and uh, trying. I'm I'm trying to also appeal a little bit to career counselor offices in schools because there's there's probably a, a little bit better affinity there to you know the book talks about that transition from idealized problem solving to kind of real world problem solving. And that's, that's very much about careers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the other place that we have found an audience, uh, which was a surprise to me was the, the maker community. Uh, So I've been very pleased with that, that uh, lots of interest on that side. Fantastic. Yeah. I was listening to a recent episode of the amp hour and, and Chris Gamble had mentioned the, uh, uh, the passing of uh, one of the brothers on the uh, car talk. The, uh, car talk, yeah. The, yes, yeah. and uh, uh, he he mentioned the the show. He said that show wasn't wasn't ever about cars. It was about troubleshooting, and I never thought about it in those terms. But I guess that's exactly what that show was really about. Yes, very much. I, I remember listening to an episode of that where a person called in and they said, "Well, my car." stalls and bucks when I put the transmission in drive, but if I put it in reverse, it goes wonderfully. <laughs> and and they, they, you know, it was a total mystery. But, and all of a sudden, one of the brothers said, I know what's wrong. And he was able to describe how if you had a broken engine mount, the, the engine would be torquing against its mounts and it would pull away from the manifold in one direction and it would push towards it in the other. So right, naturally right. it worked great in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so have you, uh, been, uh, receiving any new stories of, of troubleshooting new adventures from engineers that have read the book? Not too many. I, I really wish more people would email me with with their troubleshooting stories. I, I you know occasionally get some in person, but it's hard to always remember to scribble them down. So, no, I, I love engineering stories, and I love it when people share their debug stories. <laughs> Does it count as a good story if you trace back to someone not reading the manual? You know, that's a very common theme. <laughs> Uh, well, if anybody out there would like to make my job easier, please read the data sheet. I put a lot of work into those. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I tell you what, Bob, because I knew you were coming back on. I, I came up with three troubleshooting stories, and one's, one's a mechanical troubleshooting, one's an electrical troubleshooting, and one's a software troubleshooting. So I'll give you your, your option. You can pick any one or all three if you want, but I'll, I'll, I'm willing to oh, share stories. Start, start with, uh, oh, how about the mechanical one? Sounds great. Okay. So the mechanical one is I, I, uh, as winter uh, disappeared at uh, uh, the old house that we had, uh, we've moved into a, a new one since, uh, but winter disappeared and, and I went outside and I realized that the water spigot on the outside of the house had busted during the winter, that it had frozen. We had a really cold winter and, and uh, it had busted and that I needed to replace it if I was going to use that water spigot during the, the summer months. So having not repaired uh, this type of item before, I, I started out by going to the hardware store and I picked up the, the replacement spigots and, and the spigots uh, had the handle that you turn to turn on the water and they had, oh, I don't know, about a 12 to 16 inch pipe behind it and that pipe was threaded. So it was pretty obvious what you'd end up doing is you would uh, unthread the old uh, spigot and you would thread the new one in and that would make the connection. And then, you know, so the key was getting one that was the right length. So, okay, I, I understand that. And so I, with this knowledge, I went home and you, re, you undo the two screws that, that attach the, the spigot to the, to the wood, the, the board that was there on the outside wall. And I did that. And then I carefully got out a wrench and I turned the spigot and it turned, you know, it gave it, I, I had to give a little oomph, but I, it turned. Okay. It's turning, it's turning, it's turning. And I, un, I unthreaded that and pulled it out. And so now I have the spigot in my hand. And so now I look at it. Okay. It looks something like what I saw at the store. So back to the hardware store, I go and I buy a new spigot that matches the length of the one I've just pulled out. And having done a little you know, not much, but a little plumbing before I knew, you know, put a little Teflon tape on the threads uh, before bringing it back, you know, threading it back in. So I did that, put it back into the wall, got everything lined up and started to turn it back to thread it into the pipe on the other end. And it started to, uh, I would feel it start to catch, you know, in the threads, but it wouldn't catch exactly. And then it would, it would let loose. And I was like, okay, what's going on? And I, I tried several times. It would just start to, it would feel like it was just starting to catch, but it wouldn't. And so I'd pull the thing back out and I'd look and I'd shove it back in and I'd turn it. And this had me, this had me really baffled because I just couldn't get this thing to thread back in. And now darkness is starting to set in. It's, I started about three in the afternoon. It's now getting to be, you know, it's still in the spring. So it's getting to be 630, the light, the sun's going down. And I've got a pipe in the middle of my wall that's not connected to anything. Now, in order to, I guess I left out in order to do this work, I shut off the water in the house so that I could undo this pipe because I knew that the spigot was attached to the water in the house. So now I, I can't turn, I can't, I can't go to bed because I know the next morning there's no shower if I don't get these things fixed. So I take a look. I, I look, I just can't figure it out. I'm looking, I'm shining a flashlight inside the wall, trying to see what's going on. I'm looking at the pipe and I look at it and I look at it and look at it. Eventually it dawns on me that if I look at the length of the old pipe, about, I don't know, three or four inches up from the end of it, I see a line of solder around on the pipe. And it finally dawns on me what has happened. 
the builders of the house had a pipe, copper pipe in the wall that was just the right size that you could slide this pipe on the spigot inside that copper pipe. And so instead of taking the time to put on a matching fitting, they just soldered around the outside of the old copper pipe onto the uh, the outer diameter of the pipe from the spigot, which was enough to create a watertight seal. But of course, as soon as I had twisted that off, I broke I bro- broke the solder joint, and now there's nothing I can do. So now I really do have a pipe inside the wall with the sun coming down. And so I, uh, not not having any other recourse, I called a plumber and paid triple time to have him come out. And uh, I cut a hole in the inside wall so that we could get into the pipe. And I had him put in a fitting, and I had him put in a valve so that if this should ever, ever happen in the future, we can shut off the water to the outside spigot and, and make whatever corrections are needed and that the the outside spigot actually had a thread, a matching thread to fit into. But in trying to figure out what was going on there, it's always the assumption. You're assuming, and I was assuming, there was a threaded fitting on the other end of that and there wasn't a threaded fitting. And the only clue I had was the solder, the little bit of solder that remained on the outside of that pipe. And if I hadn't found that solder, uh, I probably would have ended up calling the plumber anyway, but uh, I would have had no clue. So uh, it seems in all my troubleshooting stories, the, the the problem is always I've made an assumption that I think is entirely reasonable, but it's not the truth. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet almost everybody on on tonight has had some plumbing adventure very much like that. I mean, maybe different, but. Plumbing seems to be very common. Yeah. Yep. I had to try my hand at it when I bought my house, too. Nothing crazy. I had a leaky leaky seal in the toilet, and I was like, I'll just replace all the guts, teach myself how to do it. And next thing you know, the tank's off and everything because I busted stuff. Then I bought the wrong guts. And, <laughs> uh, it was a great fun. It turned into a whole afternoon instead of just an hour. I replaced all of the steel pipe in my house with copper. My roommate went to uh, Vegas for the weekend, so dropped him off at the airport, came home and took a sawzall of the piping and said, now I'm committed. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) It's got to be done before he gets home because I'm sure he's going to want to take a shower. Um, Wow. Yeah. I had a shower that uh, drain the drain leaked for uh, three years before I finally said, okay, I'm done with this. I'm cutting the whole thing out and replacing it. Yeah. Just off and on various fixes over the course of three years. Oh, gosh. Well, I, I had, I since we're sharing plumbing stories, if you'll forgive me, <laughs> just this uh, couple, maybe about a week ago, we had a, um, a faucet that my wife wanted replaced in a bathroom. And okay, great. You know, go buy the new faucets and all this and put the first one in. No problem. Go put the second one in. And the shutoff valve stripped, you know, the, because it had become so calcified, it just didn't want to turn. And when I turned it, then it stripped mm-hmm. the handle. And I thought, yeah. oh, my gosh. So now I have yeah. to replace the shutoff valve. And I went and bought a new one. And they have some really neat ones now that are quarter-turn ball valves. And, oh, boy, this is great. Get in there. Got the propane torch. And I'm heating up the, the solder joint on the old one. And I've got a hold of the old shutoff valve with a pliers. And finally, the solder, you know, gets hot enough and it lets go. And my arm goes flying back and I couldn't quite hold the, the pliers together. And so the 
the old valve, which is now very, very hot, falls on the carpet. Mm. <laughs> I, I see, you know, a little little curl of smoke coming up. And, and my wife, who's been holding the flashlight, is standing there, and she's just gasping. And, and she's going, fire, fire. And I, I said, yeah, I know. And I take the pliers, and I pick up the valve. And, and she says, no, no, no. No, I'm like, no, I got to get it off the carpet. She's like, no, 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 other, other. Like, what are you talking about? She says, other hand. Well, I'd kind of <laughs> forgotten that I had the torch in my other hand. And it's it's laying up against, you know, the cabinetry. <laughs> busily charring away at the wood. And, and um, in the meantime, of course, we've cut off all the water in the house. <laughs> oh. So she was she was pretty well panicked, but fortunately the 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 cabinetry wasn't quite as flammable as we thought, and just ended up with a little black smear on it. <laughs> yeah, you got to watch when you solder pipes. My uh, my wife, when she was in college, they were all on Christmas break, so no one was in the house. But the landlord at their sorority house uh, had a plumber in there, and he was soldering incorrectly, and ended up burning the whole sorority house down. Oh my. yeah, yeah. So they all get this, uh, you know, call over Christmas break. Like, oh, by the way, your house is on fire. <laughs> wow, worst plumber. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah really. I dripped uh, molten lead into my eye when Ooh. I was sweating pipes. Don't do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not fun. I've shot shards of metal in my eye from a lathe before when I was in high school, and thought, who needs eye protection? No, I, I learned as I pulled it out in the bathroom. The correct answer is everyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, this has nothing to do with writing your ideas down. <laughs> and it has nothing Not to I'm do with diagrams. <laughs> Write down this. You need eye protection. <laughs> yeah. This is turning into how did I almost destroy my house? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, tell you what, in you know, we talked not too long ago with uh, Sam Feller, uh, who actually went to our school to improve his drawing skills. And so, you know, I'm not saying that you have to be Michelangelo to convey ideas without words. You know, it's not like your drawings have to be brilliant, but I think there is some uh, value in trying to think through your ideas without words. You know, either as sketches, or you know, or or some sort of. For me, it's drawings, but I mean, you could also do it with, you know, clay or a model or depending on what, you know, what type of engineering, what type of field, what type, type of structure you're trying to produce. There's some level of thinking that goes on when you, when you draw, when you model, uh, or, 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 uh, sculpt that, that doesn't happen when you're verbally expressing yourself. I, I came across a, a website where they were talking about this, this tie between artistry and, and thinking and, uh, a quote that I found uh, from uh, from an artist named Heather Martin was, just as the title of a work of art can provide a way in, a bridge to what a work is about, I find placing a pen or pencil to paper forms a pathway between a thought, an internal vision, perhaps something I want to make or get someone to make for me, or a position in space. So drawing is a way for me to, to start to explore and explain an idea first to myself uh, and then to others. And so much in the way that I was uh, describing with Brian that, that when I'm working on mechanical design, I'm sort of laying things out. You know, I, I, I like the art of, of drawing to, uh, uh, to sort of form concepts. And of course, they're in, when I'm just working with myself, it just has to make sense to me. But, but sometimes when we work with groups, now we need to share, uh, with others. And, uh, so that's 
that's kind of the the area that I want to hit on next is is how can we use things other than words to convey our design ideas with with others in our in our groups. Okay, let me start an argument. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I love that the title is Ideas Without Words and and you just hit on this idea uh, or this this notion of conveying, you know, concepts without words. But personally, I think I find that every diagram I've ever dealt with had to have at least a few words. So maybe I'd I'd rather the title were Ideas with Fewer Words. But that's kind of clumsy, and it's not as catchy as ideas without words. <laughs> right. So tell me, I'm an idiot. That's okay. Everybody else. Oh no, does. <laughs> no. So so in the in the drawings that you do, um, so words are abstractions too, right? When we when we say the word dog, we understand it's a a four legged creature of a certain type of a, you know relative uh, shape and form, but it can be a very small dog. It can be a large dog. It, we we're not describing the color. We're not describing necessarily the size of the tail or the size of the ears. We just have this this abstract notion of a dog, just in the same way that if we write down an equation of, uh, you know, uh, cosine squared, uh, cosine x squared plus sine x squared equals four, we have an abstract notion of a circle. We don't we don't have to say this is a circle. We've conveyed in this equation the the concept of a circle. So. Uh, so words can have abstractions, and I'm curious when you when you use figures, what are the words for? What information? What function do they serve on that on that drawing on that chart? Well, to me, probably one of the biggest things is uh, units. In other words, mm-hmm. e- even the most simple Cartesian graph. You know, maybe we're plotting uh, amplitude versus frequency, or um, who knows what else. But you know, you need to have the units on that that figure so that you can comprehend what the person was trying to present to you. You know, is, is that dollars per month income or is that, uh, volts per, um, per foot, you know, something there, there's some, mm-hmm. some concept, some measurement. And, uh, you were talking about, you know, drawing a circle for a mechanical, uh, representation. Well, that, if that circle is one millimeter across, it's kind of a different construction than if it's three feet across. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that sometimes units are just so important in, in any figure. And I, I get pretty irate with people who send me unitless graphs. So. <laughs> <laughs> Some crazy marketing guys behind that decision. Yeah. Usually trying to hide something. <laughs> But, but no, I, I'm a huge fan of all kinds of diagrams. And the thing I would say is that one of the things that a diagram lets us do is bridge both space and time. I can mm-hmm. send a drawing to someone who's very far away from me and suddenly maybe they understand what I'm trying to convey. Or I can send a drawing of some kind or a diagram. Uh, I, I can put it into a, a record, you know, like a, a book or a file. And many years later, someone can open that up and say, oh, that's what he was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so uh, diagrams are very good at showing, uh, you know, certain things. They can show uh, spatial relationships. Uh, they can show uh, temporal relationships, uh, what comes first, what comes second, uh, dependencies, you know, what, what part depends on something else. Uh, or sequence, uh, direction of movement. So, so drawings can do a lot of things that are difficult to do with words. 
Oh yeah. Sometimes with just a quick quick sketch, you can you can shave twenty minutes off a conversation trying to get everybody on the same page. Yeah. Because it gives yeah. everybody a, a focal point to talk about, and they could say, "Yes, I, I see what you're saying. This is what I was thinking." And then you know, draw a dashed line on the graph, or you know, whatever. What if we move the holes here on the you know this box? Right. So when I was in graduate school, they offered a course in sketching, drawing as, you know, in the evenings, if you wanted to take it sort of an optional type thing. But other than that, I don't remember anywhere in my schooling. Well, I guess I took a drafting class early on, but other than that, no one talked about how drawing, you know, figures, these types of figures might be useful in professional communications. Did you guys ever come across any, uh, you know, tutorial or, or education in this area? No, 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 not formal. I had a professor in high school who tried to teach his basic sketching, but I don't think he knew. And he was very good at, <laughs> he was just winging everything. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, you guys should learn how to sketch. And there was like two or three days spent on it, but that was about as far as it went. Oh, okay. Well, you know, uh, and, and I don't know as, you know, sketching, doing things in artistic, you know, trying to uh, produce a realistic rendering is is all that important as, as much as this idea of getting across, you know, these ideas of relationships and, and dependencies. Uh, you know, Bob, in your book, you talk about the benefits of drawing block diagrams, and certainly all of us can draw squares yep. and arrows. Uh, so, so how are block diagrams a benefit to an engineer? Well, to me, I really like block diagrams when they simply organize our thoughts about inputs and outputs. And I know that just sounds way too simple, you know, but it's so often that we kind of forget this very high level of what goes into something and what comes out of it. We used to call it goes intos and goes outas, you know, it's <laughs> right. kind of silly, but, um, you know, just sometimes just organizing that is enough for someone to say, wait, wait, you, you know, you don't have enough information in that block. This input is just totally missing from that. There's no way you can make the decision that you think you're going to make, you know, based on mm -hmm. that, that process. And I guess I am talking more about processes or, um, it, it can be circuits. Um, you know, I, I think block diagrams are probably less useful in mechanical because, um, you know, you do sort of need that pictorial or, or some kind of representation of the, of the physical item. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. One could say controls engineering is nothing more than drawing block diagrams. Uh, if you want to just be, you know, broad and sweeping generalizations. <laughs> okay. You know, you got your goes intos and you goes outos and you, you just make sure it's stable. That's all you got to do. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there was a, I'm trying to remember, there was a computer programming, you know, software method. And I, for the life of me, I'm, I'm struggling to remember the name of it, but it was, it was basically this idea where it was a whole bunch of boxes and you were giving, it, it was a standard for drawing these inputs and outputs. So you'd have the, the inputs come in from the left and the outputs come in from the, uh, to the right. And you had constraints on whatever was going on come in from the top. And there was something that can't, I, I can't remember it. I just remember it was like, it was like IDEM zero or there was some. Sounds like an early Simulink. I can't remember the name of it. And this was, golly, this was 30 years ago that I was looking at this stuff. But but we tried at the, at the company I was working for at the time, we tried to implement this to 
you know, sort of force people to think through these, these, uh, these inputs and outputs. And the reality was that everybody got completely confused as to what was an input and what was an output and what was a constraint and trying to keep it separate. And everybody just gave up on it. You know, this was like a, a three week effort. And then after three weeks, everybody said, I'm not wasting any more time making these drawings. And so is it necessary that we crank through it and, you know, suffer through to get all this lined up? Or is it just the fact that there's a lot of gray area in what we do? And sometimes we don't know what's the input and the output. and We can't make a neat diagram of the, the messy world we live in. Well, I, I guess I would argue that a block diagram helps you sort out that mess. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's the way I like to use them is to kind of force you to think about or force people to think about what what's going on in in a system that we're trying to develop. Right. No, and I, I'm I'm all with you. I I was the one that stuck with it the longest. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was still working on it when everybody else had given up because I wanted to understand you know what the advantage was of this and and uh, why it might work. So, so Bob, do you find yourself, do you use block diagrams on a regular basis? Oh, I do. I definitely do. It, it's, um, it's almost constant in, in what I, you know, because often we're, we're trying to even be more abstract than a schematic. A schematic tells you exactly how certain things are connected together, although it does not, uh, show you certain things. And, you know, earlier, Tonight you said something about oh gee a uh, uh, a schematic's just showing you that you connect point A to point B and and that's all you care about except not at two gigahertz you know if you're up at two gigahertz that little line that you draw across your schematic uh, may represent a lot of inductors and capacitors and and a pretty messy physical uh, implementation. Yes, I, and I don't think I – I do not mean that it did not ever matter, just that you, there was greater flexibility in electronic design with re- regard to spatial positioning than there was in mechanical design. Okay, I'll I'll certainly agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> so when uh, when you're conveying these, uh, these schematics or, or these block diagrams, Bob, are you normally doing it – is it on a piece of paper that's being, you know, sent around via a memo or email or is it uh, – are you doing it on a whiteboard, or, or how are you conveying these ideas? Oh, both ways, absolutely. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, a lot of times when you're problem-solving in a group, the most very common experience is a bunch of people standing around a whiteboard trying to explain to each other their idea of what it is they're trying to do. And you may have three competing block diagrams on on a given whiteboard or, you know, one guy's doing a block diagram, but somebody else is making a list on the side and saying, yeah, but you got to remember these six things. And, um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm a huge fan of whiteboards for brainstorming and for clarifying amongst, you know, within a group. But I, I, I think, you know, from, from my book, I'm also a big fan of getting that converted to an electronic form as soon as you can. And and your concern is that just that the information is not lost, or is there some interpretation you're worried about that that we interpret the information differently on a whiteboard than we would in some other form? Uh, no, it's really so that you can communicate that information across time and distance, because you know whiteboards get erased and um, they they just disappear, and also. You can try to kind of picture. Oh, am I going to ship you know by FedEx a whiteboard 
halfway around the world. No, I, I'm going to take a photograph and I'm going to email the photo. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a lot easier. Right. And so we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, task management and keeping track of, you know, tasks. But you sort of hit upon an area that uh, I struggle with is that over the years, I've had a lot of ideas and I've, I've, you know, these whiteboards, these notes, these diagrams, these charts, I write them down and I put them in notebooks and I've, you know, moved into the digital age and I've, I've uh, scanned them and put them into electronic format. But then when I need them, you know, the, the, you know, everybody says, well, tag everything, but I never know uh, in advance what, what it's going to be relevant to. And so I'll, I'll think of things five years, 10 years down the road. Oh man, there, I did a diagram. I did something that was like that. And I remember it. But now I can't find, I keep, for the life of me, I look through every book I can think to look through and every notebook and scan every file and I can't find it. Do you have a way, Bob? Have you found a way to keep track of, of all your notes and all your thoughts over the years? No, I'm ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit how, how bad I am. I, I'm, I am a fan of spiral notebooks and I have an, a, a disgusting number of spiral notebooks, you know, stored in cardboard boxes that I sometimes actually go back through. Mm-hmm. It, and, and do you, you occasionally find what you're looking for? I do. And, and it's, it's led to some very odd things. There was a time once that I happened to pull out a spiral notebook that was from 10 years previous. And I saw a man's name on this and, you know, oh, yeah, he called and he asked, you know, and I could see the note, what he had asked about. And oddly, the very next day, my phone rang and it was the same person. And he said his name and I said back to him the name of his company. And there was just silence at the other end. <laughs> and he said, how did you know that? And I said, well, you called me 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, he, he thought I had some kind of um, terribly good memory, and I, I had to confess to him, no, I just happened, it's just a weird coincidence that I picked up the book that had your name in it, and I just saw it yesterday, so that's why I remembered it. Yeah. So, let me jump back before we move too far away from the, uh, the whiteboarding issue, uh, a thought I had, and that is, there is... Something about we, we seem to enjoy watching each other make drawings. And so if you're there live and you're watching the drawing appear, I think there's some value in sharing in that, especially when the, when the draw, the person doing the drawing is talking while they're doing it. So, you know, they start with, well, we've got the, you know, we've got the main core here in the center and then we've got the, uh, you know, the watchmacallits spiraling off to the edges and then you draw the, the, the watchmacallits, uh, and then, you know, the, the person doing the drawing describes then coming in from the outside, we've got this electron wave force and, you know, and, and if you do that, if you're talking as you do the drawing, everybody gets, you know, they are helping you. They're, they're in their brain developing the same model as you go along and it, it invites them to say, no, 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 what you're assuming there is wrong. Whereas I think if you present just the final drawing and you say, well, here it is, they, they're not privy to the development, you know, the ideas that you were working with as you as you came up with it. And so uh, that's one of the things I do like about drawing on a whiteboard or getting up in front of a group and drawing is that 
you know, if you start doing that drawing, and especially if you talk out loud, if you don't just stand up there for three minutes and do drawings and then say, here it is, if you talk while you're doing it, I think you do a lot to convey your thought process, your assumptions, uh, what you're hoping to achieve with that with that concept. I, I certainly agree with that, and I never thought of this. I mean, you're you're opening my mind to something because I really enjoy it when it's somebody a lot smarter than me doing it. <laughs> <laughs> But when you say smarter, it's always – it's not that they're really – you know, their IQ is off the charts as much as it is. They're just seeing the world in a way that you haven't thought of yet, right? Oh, you, okay, sure. Let's go with that. So <laughs> so we, we, we assume that, that if somebody thinks of something that we hadn't quite gotten to or hadn't come up with, that they must be vastly smarter. It, you know, they may be, but but then we all have interesting life experiences and, and we come at life from different directions and sometimes, you know – just because of that, we come. We have different uh, thought patterns and come up with an idea that someone else wouldn't ever get. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I always got to hand it to the guys at work. There's a, there's a couple of the engineers that are, are really good at conveying their ideas on whiteboards as they explain it. And it feels like every time I try to do that, I either wind up with a crappy diagram because I'm focused on my words or crappy you know, explanation because I'm worried about drawing everything properly. And it, it I always right. come across muddled. You know, part of it's because, you know, they've been doing it for 10, 15 years, so they just have more practice. But ugh, I think it's an art. I, but I, I think you're right. It is practice. I, you learn over time what works and what doesn't work and, and what people understand and what they don't understand. And that feedback sort of changes your thinking about it. So uh, if you try to present an idea and it doesn't go very far, you're going to think about it a little bit before you try to present that same idea to another group. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it goes if it goes swimmingly, you're going to remember that and go, oh, when I need to convey this idea, here's the explanation, and it really works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Keep at it. You you'll get better with practice. Woo-hoo. More more presentations for me. <laughs> Impromptu, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Hey, have any of you guys tried uh, mind mapping? Yes. And and what has been your experience with that? Um, it was an interesting, uh, attempt, but I, I don't think I, I don't think I repeated my attempt. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was, I was, I using Visio to do it or that'd be a pretty yeah, common so, mind mapping software. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there's a whole bunch of, of software programs and my advice is scrap all of them because the mirror, the mirror, yeah, because because the mere fact you have to sit there and think, okay, I want to draw a circle, and okay, now I have options. What color should this? Okay, so let me back up. So mind mapping for those who are not familiar with it. Basically, you take a large people piece of paper, and in the middle of the uh, piece of paper, you draw a circle, or the canvas if you're doing electronically. You you put a circle and you put the word or the concept in the middle that you want to think about or concentrate or focus on. And then you start sort of free association and things that come up, uh, related concepts, related ideas. You write them down outside the bigger circle, and now you start uh, – you put a circle around each of these ideas, and now you start drawing lines indicating associations or hierarchy or, or relationships. And as you do that, you'll think of new things, and it's sort of you know free association. You keep just keep writing down, and the idea is that uh, without the – Without criticizing yourself, without censoring yourself, you just write things down as you go along, and it gets it out of your brain and onto the paper, 
and it it uh, you get things out that you otherwise would censor yourself from putting out because it sounded like a crazy idea or you you had doubts about it. Mm-hmm. So back to to what you're saying, Brian. When I tried to do this on computer programs, then it's you draw the circle and now you how big a circle and it should be more square, should it be more oval, should it be teal, should it be blue. You've got too many things to think about. The whole idea of this whole free association works much better with a piece of paper where you don't have time to think about all that. You just draw a circle and go on to the next thought. And and the point is to keep yourself writing so you get these ideas down. And and that little thought that was in the back of your brain generating, germinating somewhere, out it comes. And you you never even knew it was was in the brain. Yeah. Uh, You're right. I spent a lot of time fussing over how to (laughs) – you know, with the implication, I'm trying to get, like, what this kind of arrow means. Like, it seemed like there were always two or three different ways to link concepts. And, oh, I mean, are we using arrows or lines or what thickness? Yes. Yeah, the, too, too much of that. And some and some people uh, make mind maps that are like works of art. And, and I can never do that. Mine are ugly as sin. But uh, at least for me, mind mapping was advantageous when I needed, I had a whole bunch of thoughts, a whole bunch of ideas, and I couldn't, I didn't know how to make sense of them. And I just needed to get them out. And by writing them, so as you write an idea and you go, okay, this idea is a little more towards, uh, so so am I talking about the electrical system or am I talking about the mechanical system or am I talking about the software system? Well, as your ideas come out, you just tend naturally to write ideas that are related to software near the software circle and ideas that are related to hardware near the hardware circle. And, you know, whether you're talking about spatial or temporal or economic relationships, it, this sort of comes out in the whole idea of, of doing this mind mapping. So it's not something I do real frequently, but it has been advantageous to me when, like I said, when I've got just a whole bunch of ideas in my head and I've got to start putting some sort of structure around it and I don't know where to start. Huh. I I know that I personally use uh, Excel, you know, spreadsheet to to just make lists in the same kind of mode where mm-hmm. I just you know put a, a heading and I start I put write down ten things under that heading and pretty soon I find I've got ten new headings and I start moving things between the headings because I, I'm realizing that, well, no, I, I said this was associated with this list, but no, it really goes over in that list. Mm-hmm. But but I don't do the arrows between them. I just tend to do it sort of out of indented lists or something. Yeah. Huh. So And so the advantage, of course, of doing it electronically is now you can move it around. You don't have to redraw your entire diagram. If, if I've done it on paper and I want to neaten it up, I have to redraw every circle every diagram. Yeah. But I, I, but for me, I find the process of doing that good because in, in redoing it, I think, I, I think through the process once again, and it helps me yet once again to refine the hierarchies, refine the relationships, uh, think of thoughts that I hadn't uh, thought of before. The, the key is you have to stop at some place and admit that this is a imperfect, you know, this will, you will never capture all the information on this diagram. So uh, two or three iterations is plenty. You don't, you don't need to do it forever. I think I was always too intimidated and thought mind mapping would show how messy my mind was. <laughs> well, I, I think we, we, we all have a, you know, a jumble of thoughts in our brain and, and uh, uh, those that appear real organized are just those that hide it better. <laughs> so I, I was never too embarrassed about drawing for myself 
But of course, I want before I showed anybody else, I wanted to make sure I had it all neatened up. Maybe if the mind map is too neat, you should really be worried about the person. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could, that could be. So there was a, a book that came out, oh, a few years back. I let me actually, I've got it here on my desk. Let me take a look. It was uh, originally published in 2008 and the paperback edition came out in 2013 which is what i have and it's a book called the back of the napkin solving problems and selling ideas with pictures have any of you guys come across this book before i haven't no have we mentioned it on the show i don't think we have we might have but i don't remember it i've seen it but only because you mentioned it (laughs) (laughs) okay okay. it looks sweet yeah so i looked at this book after it came out i'd you know, I got some pretty good reviews, and I looked at it several times, but but uh, it took me a couple years. Finally, when the paperback edition came out, I was convinced to uh, to purchase it. And so my first read through the book was, this thing isn't telling me anything new. I mean, the diagrams that he's, the types of diagrams and the forms of diagrams that he's putting, uh, uh, this author, Dan Rome, is suggesting, isn't anything that we haven't seen before. You know, he, he talks about, so like he's got uh, chart types that are like portraits uh, where basically you're drawing a little picture of the person because you're trying to identify characteristics of them or you're drawing a, a chart because, you know, like a bar chart uh, to show relationships of how much or a map to show, you know, spatial relationships or a timeline or a flow chart or maybe even as fancy as he gets as a multivariable plot to show interactions. And as engineers, we... There's there's none of these that are really that we've not seen before, and I was I was expecting some uh, you know some magical uh, insight, some some silver bullet that would solve my communication ideas when it came to drawings. But in rereading it, uh, going back and rereading it later, I think he does make some uh, some good points in just suggesting that, especially for people that don't know where to start, uh, there are particular chart types that seem to go well to explain several types of questions that come up and he also puts it in sort of a grid uh, that says okay for each of these you can you you can expand this type of chart uh, depending on what kind of uh, information you're trying to convey so you know uh, he he uses the the mnemonic squid sqv id it, the V because it looks like a U, but anyway, it's for the S is for simple or elaborate. You know, are you trying to uh, convey a sim- Are you trying to convey your idea simply or very elaborately, uh, qualitatively or quantitative? That's the Q. The V that the U that kind of looks like a V is vision or execution. Are you sharing your idea, your big picture concept, or how you're going to do it? The I is for individual or comparison. Are you showing just one one item, or are you showing you comparing? multiple items. And D is for delta. Are you showing a change or a status quo? And so he has a, a six by five matrix showing the, the six chart types of portrait, chart, map, timeline, flow chart, and multivariable plot against these, uh, his squid uh, section of uh, simple qualitative vision, individual change, and makes a case that you can tailor your drawing, tailor your your sketch to the idea and the audience uh, that you're trying to communicate to and with. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a good read. I, I actually, I liked it better going back the second time than I did on the initial read. So just forewarning to anybody who buys the book and uh, the first time through goes, there's not much new here. 
second time through, you might feel differently. Hmm. Noted and added to my list. (laughs) So one thing that's kind of a running joke in my family is that my wife and children tell me I cannot go out to eat anywhere without coming home with something written on a napkin. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So do you ever use the napkins? Uh, only I usually use them just long enough to remind me when I get home to, to either send an email or write something else down somewhere else. Mm. That's why I need a pocket book, pocket notebook. (laughs) I do think Bob, that this is an indication of engineers thinking a little differently because like you, when I go out to have lunch with, with friends that are non-engineers, rarely do I pull out the napkin. But if I go out to lunch with other engineers, Almost always I'm pulling out the napkin and we're making some sort of sketch because we want to convey these, you know, these relationships, spatial, temporal, that are tough to explain with just words. I wish I were that self-controlled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're saying you pull out the napkins no matter who you're having lunch with. Yes, I'm, I confess it. It's true. <laughs> and and so do you, do you have a sense of what's – on the napkins most times? Is it, is it always a sketch? Is it, what, are, what are you conveying? I don't understand why, but it can be anything. <laughs> now, often, it, often it is like a plot or a graph or something. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just a timeline. Right. Yeah. Rarely it's a picture, like a, um, you know, a pictorial type sketch. Right. Yeah, I don't think, you know, if you're not doing design work or you're not trying to say, hey, this is what our new product has to look like, again, we're not, uh, you know, most of the times these drawings are not works of art, artistic renderings. They're, they're trying to convey these, these relationships. So, so let me, uh, uh, I'll run real quickly through, again, through, uh, through Dan Rome's book. He talks about the six problems, uh, and which, which chart goes with it. And he says that, that if we're talking about who and what, that is things, people, and roles that he suggests a portrait where you sort of draw a picture, you know, a little smiley. And this isn't fancy. This is like a little smiley face. And you can write down, you know, the person's name or their position. Or the idea is that you're just indicating this is a, this is a person. Or if it's a, if it's a product, you know, here's a picture of our product. And so you, you sketch out a little computer or you sketch out a little widget, you know, whatever it is. The idea is that uh, without being fancy, when you're talking about who and what type questions, you you try to very simply and elementally represent that um, that thing. If you're talking about who, how much uh, measuring and counting those types of things, then you you want a chart so that you can show relative amounts. If you're if you're trying to show where uh, direction and interconnections, then you draw a map uh, so you can show spatial positioning. If you're trying to show when, so you've, you've got issues of scheduling and timing, you'd show a, a timeline. Uh, if you're showing how something happens, then it would be a flow chart. So you can show the, the relative influence of, of the components or the objects or the uh, bodies in, in, the, uh, in the system. And if you're trying to show the big picture, the why, uh, then you use some sort of multivariable plot so you can show the interaction. So as you increase spending you know, the sales go up or you decrease voltage, the, uh, the response goes down, something like that. So there's a number of charts that we can, we can make to try to communicate these ideas that we have. 
that the nice thing is that your drawing skills do not have to be great. If you can draw arrows and polygons and circles and lines and smiley faces, uh, you can pretty much draw one of these charts. I can also see a lot of Excel <laughs> in using these charts. So what do you mean by that? Oh, I'll, I'm much more of a, a list maker than a drawer, so. Yeah, I find myself doing uh, a lot of lists, too. So timelines and and uh, multivariable plots are more my game, if you will. Okay. So let, let me throw in my favorite, uh, because I, I have found that probably in the past 10 years, I have done far more of this one kind of diagram than than I used to ever do. And it's it's what I'd call an annotated photograph, where you've got a, a photo of something, maybe a, a circuit board or a, a box or a system, but then you've got just a small number of the arrows and circles and you know lines and a few words so that so that when you say, okay, this is the transistor I'm talking about Everybody can see, oh, that's the one he's talking about. You know, there may be 20 on the board, but oh, this is the one he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I find more and more that I'm doing that. And then other people sending me the same thing is, is some kind of annotated photograph. Yeah. And so go ahead. I was just, I do that a lot too at work. Um, you know, if you, you hack a test probe onto somewhere where you didn't explicitly leave a, a space for it or, you know, you do some interesting rework and someone else has to duplicate it, you know, it's, it's a lot of annotated photographs. And especially failure analysis, it can be, you know, really helpful if, if you can zoom in on the spot and show, okay, you know, look, here's the pin that didn't get soldered, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, it doesn't have to be anything crazy. You know, a lot of times, you know, if I get waveforms from the field and they ask questions about what's going on, I can, uh, you know, just take their waveform and then put little, you know, marker one, two, three, four, five, whatever, and say, okay, here's what's happening at marker one. We're biasing the chip this way internally. And, you know, that's why you see this shape and marker two, you know, this happens. And then what happened at marker three is what went wrong. This is how to fix it and so on and so forth. And it, it's pretty good communication tool because if, you know, you're not always writing a formal report where you can say, you know, looking at figure two, uh, you can see this happen in this time frame. It's good for quick emails and just getting the facts out to them so they know what's going on. Yep. I also think it's a lot faster than uh, having to draw up a full picture of something. I'll do this a lot of times if I need, you know, just pull up a map on Google and print it out and then take my pen to it and mark it up. And yep, I want this to look like this. And then I give it to somebody else to draw. Nice. But, <laughs> um, it's way easier than having to like draw in all the background information that you need for context, but it it's, it's in the picture. My favorite pictures are th the uh, FLIR thermal images because it is both data drawing and uh, context. Immediately in one in one image, and kind of artistic at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It looks awesome too. Look, <laughs> I mean, it looks way more professional than it does. But it's amazing how quickly you can communicate a bunch of information about the problem on a board by simply powering it up, looking where the heat goes. But, you know, taking a yeah, taking a FLIR image of it, and then you know, changing the loading on the board, take a, another image, and say, hey, before and after. Yep, yeah. I wish our FLIR uh, 
was able to take videos. It's really cool watching, uh, you know, when a load transient hits and you go from pulling three amps of current to 20 amps or something or higher. And you just, you just watch how the current flows through the board. It's really cool. <laughs> and if, if you didn't have that, if you simply had, you know, point, uh, thermocouple data, which is, I guess, how it would typically have been done in the past, could you imagine trying to communicate that same information? Yeah, it'd be impossible. You need infinite thermocouples so you could show where yeah. it tracks to. <laughs> yeah. So that acronym FLIR, that's uh forward looking infrared? Is Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just thought it was the company name. Learn something new every day. <laughs> I think it's both. I yeah. believe Fluke also has a relatively decent uh thermal imager too. Has anyone used the imager that goes uh, just attaches to your iPhone? Does anyone know if that's any good from FLIR? I've seen it. It's built by FLIR. Yeah. I've seen it. I don't know if it's. I don't know how good it is. Still probably cool for quick work. I want one, nonetheless. <laughs> it is. I, 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 yeah. Just also remember novices with that that shiny objects are probably way hotter than they appear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Inductors are big hunks of metal. They hold on to heat for a while. Yes. I burn myself weekly for getting this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just in the low, low emissivity. Things that are shiny versus things that are black will appear very different on a uh, flare mm-hmm. or any kind of optical temperature measurement system. Oh, yeah. Yep. I've been bitten by that a few times. You forget to set it to semi-glossy or glossy and not mate. Yep. So Bob, I'm curious when you send out these pictures that are notated, you know, I remember back far enough that, that, uh, you know, digital cameras weren't around and, and we went, we wanted to make changes on a, uh, a drawing. We'd pull out the, the blueprint and then draw a little cloud around it to represent the idea and then fax that across the country to the other plant where they needed to know, you know, what part of the, the board we were talking, or the part of the, in this case, it was transmission that we were talking about. So in this era with, with so many, you know, modern digital tools available to us with the, the smart cameras and the, the, the digital, uh, I'm sorry, the smartphones and the digital cameras, what, uh, what exactly techniques are you using to notate your, your diagrams? Uh, I do usually use like Photoshop elements, the, you know, the, the real cheap Photoshop version. All right. Um, I, I know there are open source things and, and even, uh, free tools to do the same thing. It's just, you know, you get used to one tool. And so I've been using that for a long time. Right. And so are you taking these pictures with a digital camera or your smartphone? Uh, both, uh, used to be always, uh, digital camera and, you know, I, I'd, I'd lug a, uh, pretty hefty camera to work every day and that kind of thing, which was partly just because I was into photography. But um, more and more, uh, I'm finding that the, you know, a smartphone has a good enough camera to do 99% of what we need to get a photo of. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you, I don't know exactly how many megapixels of picture your, your smartphone is taking, but uh, are you are, so? Are you generally having to shrink that down before you send it across the world, or uh, do you go? I don't care if you get twelve megabytes; that's not that big anymore. Uh, yeah the the underlying JPEG, I I'll usually resize that to something on the you know uh, on the order of one high def frame, so maybe nineteen twenty by ten eighty or 
a lot of times even just 1280 by something, whatever mm-hmm. you know number works out, uh, because you don't really need that much resolution. It, it's surprising. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I guess it depends on what you're taking a look for. If you're looking for something microscopic, then perhaps you need all that resolution. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the one thing I really wish I had a, a macro lens for uh, a smartphone, you know, or, or like a microscope for a smartphone. That, that would be nice for, because sometimes we're just trying to take a picture of, you know, one pin on a connector or one pin on an IC. But, but most of the time we're just, you know, showing kind of a, a, a big picture view. Right. And so are there any other methods that you have for uh, sharing ideas? Uh, you know, obviously you can always write a memo where you, you know, lots and lots of words, but, but is it mostly just these, uh, just these photographs or the occasional block diagram you use in trying to convey ideas to, uh, to your coworkers? I, I like to use it as much as I can, you know, uh, images with a few words. Uh, I, I think, I think the more words I write, the more confused people get. So, you know, right. Uh, of course that may be my fault, not, not the words fault, but yeah. And are the, do you find that usually the images, the charts that you draw are understood by those that receive it? Or does it take a few times back and forth to get a common understanding as to, to how to interpret the chart? That's a really good question. Um, as long as I stick to reasonably simple representations of things, I find everybody picks up on them. Um, and, and it, it leads me to this thing, you know, almost every kind of diagram I use on a daily basis, I probably have seen for 40 years, you know, going all the way back to college. And it's rare that somebody comes up with a new kind of uh, representation. I, I yeah. mean, you know, a, a plot or a graph or, or something, or, or a visual representation that nobody's ever had before. And I think part of that is because it's, it's really hard to have something that's universal that everybody just looks at and goes, Oh, I understand that. Yeah. And yeah. so, so the few minimum things tend to cover, uh, cover the most. Right. All right, so we're pretty close to, uh, I guess, to wrapping this thing up. Are there any other subjects that you guys want to hit before we uh, we draw this thing to a conclusion? Well, I, I've got one I'd like to throw in there, and that is that um, I think the world's becoming more and more interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. and uh, we we tend to work in bigger teams today. Certainly, I, I know in in my career, I'm working in much bigger teams than I did at the start of, you know, when I was starting out. And so, um, a lot of times, uh, let's say in, you know, I'm an electrical engineer and and the biggest problems that we're fighting in these electrical designs today are thermal or surge and ESD or EMI problems or packaging issues. And, you know, so in other words, we worry about how hot the product gets or, you know, how we're going to get rid of that heat or how sensitive it is to some kind of electrical overstress or how much radio energy it puts out and interferes with other things. And so none of those have anything to do with making the product function. Mm-hmm. They're all, you know, they're, they're all really independent of the schematic. And so 
the there's a kind of a premium on the electrical engineer who can work with and understand the thermal engineer's problem and the, the packaging engineer, the guy who's got to do the drop tests, and, and that that interaction becomes important. So it it becomes important that when the other guy brings you his kind of diagram, that you're you can understand what he's showing you. Mm-hmm. And and so these people that you work with, you know, is is the thermal necessarily a mechanical engineer, or is that person coming out of electrical engineering background as well? Very often, the the thermal is mechanical. Yeah. Okay. And what about packaging? Packaging would be a mechanical guy too. Okay. Yay, mechanical. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thermal's definitely on the rise for uh, issues we have to face. You know, I'm, I design parts that go into laptops and computers, and with everything shrinking, you know. It, it gets pretty crazy trying to wick heat away into into a board and out of the board and wherever it's got to go. Yeah, I remember when I was getting ready to graduate from college, the uh, Cray computer was interviewing on campus. Ooh. And I went and interviewed with them uh, because I thought it would be so cool to work for Cray computer. But I had a real interest in programming and, uh, you know, microprocessors. And I thought, well, they'll want me for – you know, my, my process, you know, my computational skills, my, my, uh, programming skills. And when I sat down with them, they immediately talked about, well, we need somebody who can help with cooling. We've got our big clay computer and we need to get all the heat out of there. It's like, oh, I, I have no interest in, yeah, I have no interest in doing, you know, to me, that was, that was like HVAC. That was, that was just getting the heat out. And little did I realize at that point in my life how, what an important part to thermal issues come in, in so many designs and so many, areas of, of products yeah he heat's a big deal <laughs> yeah heck those original craze were primarily uh refrigeration systems that you could sit on yeah <laughs> <laughs> they were they they look like a big circular bench yeah i think those that was in fact a bench <laughs> uh, well uh so are you ready for another troubleshooting story bob i'd love to hear one yes oh, here we go we've come full circle to the beginning of the show I, I give you my electrical troubleshooting story this time. So I had like four or five years ago decided I'd had enough of the uh, the cable and satellite companies and I, I disconnected from the, the system. And uh, this was about the time that, you know, high def TV was coming on anyway. So I got a high def TV and I put up a little UHF antenna in my living room and that was enough to get the local channels. And I survived on that. But as time went, went along, I grew tired of the fact that, that because I had just this teeny tiny little antenna in my front room on the first floor, that if some plane would fly overhead, it would, it would break up the signal for 30 seconds. And if somebody, in some of the channels, if somebody drove by the front of the house, the signal would break up, couldn't understand the conversation or the picture would break up. So I decided, well, I'm going to fix this. The lines I have that ran at one point to the satellite dish on the side of my house are close enough to the attic that I should be able to put a antenna in the attic without too much trouble. And so I hooked everything up as I thought it should be, and it really wasn't working too well. So I said, well, I've got to, I've got to carefully and methodically backtrack where this signal is going to make sure that I'm getting what I think I'm getting. But so I, I had cable runs through the house, you know, from the TV, but I didn't, you know, how do I figure out where the 
if if it's broken up, if I have a, a bad connection where it is. So I didn't know what else to do. So I remembered that at one point, many years ago, I used, I had a little RF transmitter set uh, from Radio Shack where I could, where I could transmit from, you know, for, I don't know, 50 feet, you could transmit a signal. Basically, it was enough to get us from the, from the living room into the kitchen uh, so we could watch a show that was on satellite. And so I got, I got that back out, dug that out of my uh, garbage pail of, of electronic things that I someday will decide what to do with. And said, okay, now I've got a way to transmit from each point in the house, from the TV to each point in the house and, and to get into some sort of cable run, but I need a, I need a source. What am I, how am I going to drive this? Ah, so I remembered that I had a DVD player that I had not used for many years that I had. So I hooked up the DVD player and put in a, a, a DVD that we had laying around and I put that, it had three of the jacks, uh, or it had it had the the three it had the video, uh, it had left right oh it had two that's right it had video and audio just those two RCA jacks and so I plugged it into the uh, RF transmitter and so now I could transmit and so what I would do is I would uh, go to various places at the house and hook that in where the I wanted the antenna run to start so I would use the 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 far end of the transmitter to transmit back down through the cable line. And so I was able to start in the basement underneath the house. So first I would start in the basement, uh, in the crawl space to make sure that I was getting the signal back out to the TV. And then uh, I checked in the kitchen and then I checked outside uh, where the connection was made outside. Uh, then I checked at the entrance to the attic. Then I checked at the far end of the attic. And eventually I discovered, even though the signal was very, very faint, I could see that DVD playing when I drove the signal from the attic all the way to my kitchen, which is actually where I wanted. I, so I had two TVs hooked up to the system and I wanted to make sure both the living room and the kitchen would get the antenna. And I was good and I was golden and I was happy. I'd hooked it up and I had my antenna, my little antenna in the attic and it had a little amplifier to make sure that I could get the signal all that through that run all the way back down to the TVs and things were beautiful. And so I packed it all up and I turned the light off and I went back down to the kitchen and I was happy and I explained to my wife what a wonderful job I'd done. And then I came back, I went upstairs in my office, worked for a while and came down for a late night snack and turned on the TV and I got no signal. It's like a oh, crap. So back, <laughs> up, back up, I go into the attic and I, I mess with it for a while and I come down and check the TV. It's working right. And I go up again and I check the T, you know, I check everything and I come back, it's working right. So I shut, you know, I shut off the lights in the attic and I, put the, the steps to the attic, to the attic back away and I go to the kitchen and it's not working again. <laughs> so back I go up into the attic and I, I start messing around with things and it finally dawned on me what I was doing. And what I was doing was this is when you, when I go into the attic, there's a light switch and you throw on the lights in the attic and it's got two light bulbs that are hanging from the, the ceiling and one of those light bulbs I had used to power the amplifier that was going to the, to the kitchen. And I had put it on the, and so I used one of those little, uh, uh, attachments that, that screws into the light socket that gives you a plug on the side of it. And it also had a little chain to turn off the light. So every time that I would wrap up my work, I would have things plugged in. I would turn off the, that light. 
And then I would walk to the light switch. And in my brain, when I hit the light switch, I was just turning off the one remaining light. It didn't <laughs> dawn on me that as soon as I turned off the light switch, I was turning off both the power to both uh, uh, sockets and I turned off my amplifier. And so every time I was turning off my light, I was turning off both sockets and therefore my TV wasn't working. And as soon as I figured that out, uh, this time I went up and I turned the light socket on and I just, the, the other light that I don't normally use, I just backed it out a few turns until it wasn't uh, illuminating anymore. And back downstairs I went and the TV has worked fine ever since. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a clue if I've ever heard it. <laughs> <laughs> but again, the, the assumption I had was that the, uh, the, the one light was not connected when I turned off the light. And I was, I, I must have made a dozen trips up and down those stairs trying to figure out what was going on before it dawned on me, uh, what the truth was. So there's my electronic troubleshooting story. It's a great one. <laughs> All right. Well, we should uh, we should probably uh, wrap this thing up then. Bob, thank you so very much for coming back on and joining us for another episode of the Engineering Commons. Yes. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Hey, anytime you want to come on, just give us a shout. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Thanks. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 